Happy Friday and welcome to Not Boring. So for today, I'm trying something new. I'm letting my guest pick the intro music. And so today's guest, Brett Beller, picked Don't Go Breaking My Heart by Elton John. Today's episode is all about what happens when you make stupid decisions around your startup equity. And so today's Not Boring Podcast is brought to you by SecFi. SecFi helps startup employees plan for and finance the cost of exercising options. They currently work with employees for 80% of U.S. unicorn companies and provide an integrated suite of personalized tools to help startup employees make informed decisions about if when, and how much it would cost to exercise their stock options. Those tools include payout simulators and exercise tax calculators. This stuff is complicated, just use the tools. And since exercising options comes with such a high price tag, they provide non-recourse financing so employees can exercise their options without having to pay out of pocket or sell their shares. And the best news about this, if your company never exits, you don't have to pay it back. Check out their tools and see if they offer financing for your company at secfi.com. That's S-E-C-F-I dot com. Now let's get to it. I'm here with my friend, SPAC fanatic, former coworker, and most importantly for today's conversation, Drizzly First employee, Brett Beller. Brett, can you introduce yourself? Wow, Packy, it took a $1 billion sale for you to allow me onto your pod. Thank you. That's that's really exciting for me. So one of the, the first employee at, at Drizzly in, I suppose, 2013, I am friend in quotes of Packy. Where do you want me to go from here? Excited so, to be here. I think the, you know, the interesting thing to me is having worked with you, for those who don't know Brett, which is most of you, although he might be familiar as a guy who talks about SPACs and Wall Street bets in some of my emails. For those of you who don't know Brett, he's a lawyer by training, but you wouldn't guess that he's a lawyer from dealing with him on the business side. But I think that comes into play in the genesis of Drizzly. Can you tell me kind of your role in the early days of Drizzly, finding the loopholes? It just is a very Brett story to me. Sure. So... I was in law school from 2010, 2013. In the summer of 2012, I was working with a firm that just represented a lot of liquor clients and just started coming across laws from basically liquor laws in the United States date back to the 1920s. They were put in place for prohibition and basically to stop the mob from controlling the alcohol industry. And that's obviously this like not a relevant set of things to be basing laws off of. So I mean, the number one thing that caught my eye was there's a law that is in almost every state, which makes it so that a liquor reach so that a liquor supplier, which supplier in this sense means brand, Pernod Ricard, Beam. So think of Jack, Jack Daniels and whatnot. A liquor brand cannot advertise directly to a retailer for a sale. So if you think about that for whatever, 90 years that met, Amizer Bush can't place an ad in a magazine or on television that says, buy Budweiser at Whole Foods, which, okay, fine. That didn't mean all that much. But in 2012, that very quickly was turning into a Amizer Bush cannot place an ad that links you directly to a purchase of Amizer Bush. So you were seeing some of the 
biggest companies in the world that spend the most marketing dollars be shut out of being able to use modern advertising, essentially, which seemed stunning and didn't really make a lot of sense. And so in order to, I think, understand Grizzly, I'm unfortunately going to have to like go into a little bit of detail to bore people on like the liquor laws of, of the United States. So basically the liquor laws of the United States are set up in a three-tiered system. There is a supplier. A supplier is all the brands you know. Name any brand you've ever known, they are a supplier. There is a wholesaler. The wholesaler is the middle tier. If you actually want to disrupt the alcohol industry, which I will not go into now, the wholesale tier is the number one place to start. But the wholesale tier is companies you probably haven't heard of that much. Southern Wines and Spirits, Breakthrough Beverage, things like that. And the bottom tier is your retailer. So Whole Foods, supermarkets, liquor stores, whatever. You cannot be in more than one of those tiers. A supplier cannot be a wholesaler. A wholesaler can't be a retailer. There are ways to get around that, but in general, most people don't. If you fall into any of those tiers, the alcohol laws apply to you. So what Drizzly's goal was at the beginning was to create a system that would fall outside of the three-tiered system, more or less be a back-end system for a liquor store that would place their inventory online, would provide them marketing, whatnot, but not touch the product, not do a delivery of the product, pass the processing of a transaction onto the store so that we basically entirely avoided touching alcohol. And so thus, instead of a delivery platform, this was like a vertical SaaS play for liquor stores at the time, pretty much. On its back end system, on its front end, it was meant to very much just look like Seamless or Grubhub, right? Uber Eats and ironically, and DoorDash were not around really at the time. And so uh, that was who we were trying to mimic on the front end. The goal was to fall outside of the three-tiered system, create a large enough store network, and create a system that essentially, if you advertise to Drizzly, you were not technically advertising to a single retailer. You were advertising to a bunch of different retailers, which could get us around the advertising law. And so- Let me pause you for there. a second. Were you involved at this point? Because this feels like a very Brett move. And if not, when did you come into the picture? So in 2012, I found a company that I won't name, but that was doing, I think what I quickly figured out was that the alcohol delivery aspect, that idea could have been a super high kid on his futon at the age of 19. Could have been like, oh man, we should like deliver beer. So a lot of people were thinking about just mimicking seamless for alcohol. The problem with just mimicking seamless for alcohol is it's not orderable seven days a week, three times a day. B, the people that do that are, we're like the first ones to know they're dead. So it, like your best customer in that case is not the customer you want, right? That's how alcohol works. It's not a product that orders like that. So really, if you think about it, taking 10% of an order, it's a terrible business model unless you're running billions of dollars through your, through your uh, system. And the odds that you were going to run billions of dollars of alcohol delivery orders through your system was far-fetched to say the least. So that, that never made sense. So I did work early on with a couple companies who were like trying this, but was just like very put off by how they were thinking about it. And given that like my background was in law, I didn't really know how to start the business. So randomly enough, like the good thing, one of the things that benefited us with, with Drizzly for a while was that like, there's a big novelty to having an app that delivered alcohol. So there was a small story put out from 
Nick Rellis and Justin Robinson, who were the other founders that I came across for Drizzly in Boston. And they had the worst app you've ever seen in your entire life. Like honestly, the worst app you've ever seen in your life. They were, they were 22. I think I was 20. They were 21. I think I was 23. They were delivering alcohol themselves out of a mini mart in Boston. And I went on the Delaware C-Corp documents and Justin, who's just like my favorite, (laughs) his cell phone number was listed on there. It still is. I went and checked on Monday, uh, Tuesday, his result. His cell phone number is still listed on the C-Corp documents. Sorry, Justin. And I just called him and he was on his way to a bachelor party in Las Vegas. I was studying for the New York bar and he thought I was trying to like steal the business from him or like extract info from him because it was honestly the most random call of all time. And we just talked for like an hour. He stepped away from his bachelor party and we just talked for like an hour. And I was like, look, man, I've like really looked into this. I feel like I understand it. I've worked with like a lot of stores in New York city. I feel like I could make New York city happen pretty quickly. And then basically from there, I passed the New York bar and instead of taking a job, I decided to start walking from the financial district to 125th street on an Avenue each day for like four weeks, walking into different liquor stores, trying to convince them to use the actual product. And we, the one thing we had were these iPhones because people didn't have iPhones then, right? So it was like a big novelty that we had this backend app where you'd operate it on an iPhone. And it was honestly becoming pretty difficult to get traction because I was some random person coming in off the street, talking to them about this thing they did not care about. And like apps were just like, you know, it was there, but like it wasn't where it, where it was. So eventually <laughs> I just... I just went into the stores and I just started explaining to them like explicitly, like what I just talked about, like the laws of alcohol advertising and stuff like that. I was like, screw it. I'm just going to like throw this out there. And then I would close it by being like, and as a result, we will never have to charge you money (laughs) ever. And do you charge the money today? Of course. So like three months later, I had to go and be like, look, look, we are going to charge you money. My bad. And there were still stores that would say no. So the stores that would say no, that I really wanted, I would take a brand new iPhone. I think it was three, 3S. Was that a thing? Was an iPhone 3S a thing? Okay. So I'd take a brand new iPhone 3S and I would just leave it there. And I'd be like, look, I'm going to leave this iPhone here and I'm going to come back tomorrow. And they're like, please don't leave an iPhone. Please don't leave an iPhone. I'm going to leave this iPhone here and I'm going to come back tomorrow. And like, they would have to talk to me when I came back the next day because I left like a $700 electronic device on their table and they didn't know who I, who I was. And like, eventually we got like 20 stores in New York within like six weeks to come onto the platform. And like, that's kind of how Drizzly got its rolling start in Boston and New York. So that was like the very beginning Drizzly. I can go further into the rest, but I'll, That's amazing. I'll stop so there. Was New, York, <laughs> was New York the biggest market for a while? Is it still the biggest market today? Do you know? Yeah. I mean, New York, New York is very unique in the sense that you got to remember the fact that New York separates being able to sell liquor and wine from liquor stores and supermarkets makes it so that the um, traditional way that people shop for wines and spirits, which is I'm at the grocery store, I'm throwing in some food, I'm going to get a couple of bottles of wine. It's not the same. So Drizzly 
very early on just like we we early on did very well in markets that looked similar store and legality wise to a New York in the sense that it just mimicked the way people shopped anyways and the stores would do a delivery for free. So it was kind of that New York was always going to be a perfect storm for that. So one question for you. So you had just gotten finished with law school, just passed your bar. Instead of taking a salary, did you take a big salary? I'm assuming at this point in the company, you didn't. So tell me, walk me through kind of like your early compensation in as much detail as you can possibly give me, because that's going to come in handy here in a second. I met Nick and Justin for the first time in a, like a, like a, a Panera Bread adjacent. If I say Panera Bread adjacent, that's not true. It was some like fancy coffee shop in New York, but like I would just, in my mind, it was a Panera Bread. And they came with an iPad explaining the product. And like, I said, all right, give me an iPad so I can show people things. So I don't have to go print a bunch of, bunch of stuff. And basically we had no funding. So we had no money. And, you know, I didn't get founder shares. You don't get founder shares, but you're in a pretty good position to do a negotiation when someone hasn't raised any money. And I negotiated a pretty nice chunk of the company in exchange for not taking a salary until this happened and basically promising to deliver like New York city and help with the legal aspect of things at first and like think that through and whatnot. So (laughs) I think it paints the picture well. So how long did you stay at Drizzly and kind of where was the company when you left and then came and joined me at, at Breather? I think it was five and a half years or so, something like that. I mean, like full time, I think it was like yeah, something like that. I mean, it was 2000s. So yeah, like five, five, five and a half. I think it's really important to remember, like, I can't say this for a fact of other companies, but like Drizzly was not a linear journey. Like this was not your like seven engineers sitting in a room. Company goes from being worth zero to a billion dollars in a year. Like, I mean, I think the one thing we lucked out on a little bit was we never took, because we never could, trust me, we definitely would have made the mistake, but we never could take some crazy stupid round that that ballooned our valuation to insanity, right? So I took no salary for the first six months of Drizzly. I mean, there were like days Nick was sleeping on my couch, like my wife came to, came to, we went on like a trip back home to Los Angeles at the time and we spent like 20 hours in some stupid liquor store, like writing down every product they had because we didn't really have the tech to pull anything live yet. So in December of 2013, maybe January of 2014, but I think December of 2013, we raised like a three and a half million dollar seed, which started to change things. And then I think you kind of got your general, like what happens with startups, right? Like you start to bring in your like, all right, three and a half million, we can have some salaries. We're going to try and bring in like the trophy hires from other places that the VC tells us that we should hire. You know, we started to grow pretty quickly then and expand quickly. We raised series A that was not significant, but the amount of money that we raised like seemed like a fortune when you, especially when you start something on your couch and don't get paid for that six, six months. And we, we expanded across the country really quickly. We became known as what was called a third-party marketing service. So we were able to be approved in California and New New York. And then what we started to do in other states was, anyone ever wants to see it, it's a website called NABLA, N-A-A-B-L, maybe .org, N-A-B-L-A, I think it's 
maybe.com, maybe.net. This thing looks like an angel fire website, like a straight up angel fire website. And it was a list of the best liquor attorneys across the country, right? And at first, when we were trying to get approved in a lot of these states, we were using like huge law firms and all these things that you would generally use. And they, they didn't know this industry. Like, because I'll tell you what I never set out to do in my life was become an e-commerce expert in the alcohol industry. <laughs> I was, wasn't dreaming about playing shortstop for the Dodgers and being an e-commerce expert in the alcohol industry. So it's just not a, something a lot of people knew about. So when we came across this site, Nabla, that's when things really started to roll downhill because basically what it was is they were able to connect us to a lot of people that were the former head of the Alcohol Beverage Control Commission of North Carolina or whatever, right? And it starts to go really quickly. You're sitting across the table from people you never dreamed you would, but you start to realize like, okay, well, the fastest way to get this done is not to go to the lawyer that's charging me $1,000 an hour. It's to go to the person who's best friends with the head of the alcohol beverage control. That being said, like we one of the reasons Drizzly was able to sell at the end of the day is like we really stuck ironically to not taking the Uber playbook. Like we did not go in and just say like F it, we're just gonna break every gray area law that exists because it was a controlled industry. Like A, I think we actually could have been arrested, actually been arrested, like had we done this. And then B, it it just seemed that from an investment standpoint, from a long-term standpoint, the best thing to do was to actually figure out how to get this done. Now, did that lead to us being super upset with ourselves when Instacart decided they were going to send like randos off the street with no training of how to like read an ID card or do anything to go pick up liquor from a liquor store and then deliver it to someone's house? Like I've absurd. Like it was absurd that that was allowed. And it goes to show that maybe blowing things up is not always the wrong thing to do. But at the end of the day, through some luck and I guess some skill, it turned out to be the right, right, right thing to do. So, I mean, you know, the early stages were rapid expansion and really figuring out the laws of kind of what I was talking about. And the, really the lucky thing Drizzly had was because we weren't housing the liquor, because we weren't processing the transactions for it, because we weren't delivering for it, and because we were really uh, a good PR story, launching markets for us was really easy. Because if it failed, it was just like, all right, well, you know, that didn't cost us that much money. We don't have 50 employees in the city. We don't have all these assets. We have nothing there. We have a store that we can pull the plug on at any point in time, or they can they can pull the plug on us. So we expanded really quick, like to a lot of markets. And Justin and myself and a couple other people worked on that, and we just spent like weeks on the road in like St. Louis. Just slinging alcohol. Just slinging alcohol. <laughs> We're going to keep in mind that that story, which I think is really typical to a lot of startups, unless you're yeah. dealing in pure software, that is kind of typical. If you're dealing with pure software, I think it's exactly what you're saying. It's you start at $0, you raise yeah. your seed round at like a $20 million valuation, then 250, then a billion, then you're out. And it's this clean path. This is all over the place, which is important mm -hmm. because after you left, and we were working together at Breather. I remember a couple of years ago, you telling me that you had sold some of your Drizzly shares and that you were pumped about it. So can you tell me how that, that situation went down? The amount of calls that I received on Tuesday from people being like, do you have like $40 million? Like, no, <laughs> no, 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 I do not. You know, we all, I think a lot of the early stage people there, we all had, no one feel bad for us. 
promise you that. <laughs> but like Drizzly from, what's the best way to explain this? Drizzly had a really, really good, we had a great app. We had a really good product. We had a really good team. Everything was set up. If you Googled a product for alcohol, we were going to be the first thing that showed up. We had a great backend system. We had everything set up. What we did not have a lot of, like growing numbers of, were people that wanted to buy alcohol on the internet, <laughs> which at the end of the day, you know, like that's the business. And so once again, I don't say it wasn't a good business. What it had, what had happened was we kind of run into that situation where it started to look like we were just too early to the party, right? In the sense that consumer practices had just not changed enough that it was going to make that big of a difference. And so it just had looked like we plat plateaued. And who, for anyone who's ever been at a startup where you start to raise a flat round, you know, you start to see your colleagues leave, right? Because everyone at a startup wants to feel like we're going to make a billion dollars, like, or that they want, you know, you want, like, you don't want to have to go into your next interview and explain what your last company was, right? Like, I guess that's the best, best, best way to put it. And so you start to see a lot of people leave. Like, in fact, from, there's not many people from when I was at Drizzly that are still there. And so if you're there early enough, you start to get opportunities to take shares off of the table, right? And like, I can safely say that Drizzly selling for a billion dollars is the equivalent of me going into a football stadium, turning off all the lights, going to the last seat on the top deck of the stadium, throwing a dart across a hundred yard football field and landing it on the bullseye. <laughs> now, I don't mean that to be that it's not a good company. I just mean a lot of things had to happen over an eight year period of time to lead to that moment. It's a fantastic company, but the fact that we landed it there is strange. And so for anyone you know who's had an opportunity to take money off of off of the table, uh, look, hindsight is 2020 is a very true phrase. But you start to think, okay, so one, I know a lot of people that have been in startups for a while, and even though everyone talks about IPOs and Uber, 99% of way more than 99% of startups are not Uber, right? And so all of a sudden, you're given an opportunity to get what is not what I think a lot of people would consider like, I'm not you know, going to be a VC in 2018, but like life-changing money for my family. Like I don't have to worry about a lot of things. And you just say, okay, like I don't even know if this company will be around in three, three years. So you sell. And there were a lot of people in that particular situation. And so I think, you know, it's, it's not like Facebook where it goes from zero to a billion dollars and why on earth would you be stupid enough to sell a single share? It's, I can't believe I'm getting the opportunity to sell these shares right now. Some of these shares, some of them, this is unbelievable. I'm going to take it. And so, you know, just to like level set, what, when you say some of these shares, you don't have to give a precise number, but we're talking like 10% of your, no. of your allocation. We're we talking more than that. Like what did you kind of range? Did you sell? I sold as many as I was allowed to sell. I sold as many as I was allowed to sell. And I had, you know, I had some like information on secondhand information on things that were happening and whatnot. Didn't sell all of them, not that close, not close to all of them, but like as many as I could sell. And like, it wasn't even a, this was not like a, should I do this? <laughs> like, I can't express that enough. This was like a, I cannot believe I get to do this. And so how I like, yeah, sure. The company sells for a billion dollars on Tuesday and 
I suppose I could say hindsight is twenty twenty, but you put me in a time machine and I do the same thing a hundred times out of a hundred times. How, how do you not? I mean, I had the chance to do that same thing at Breather with a much smaller amount while I was still right. there. And I was like, ah, I don't know, maybe I'll do 5%. And I felt bad about it because maybe it was going to be worth a trillion dollars. Right. Those shares are worth $0 right now. So had I been able to sell 50% of my shares, hindsight, I should have done that. And I think that's the case most of the time. And it points to what you're saying about the football stadium and throwing the dart at the bullseye from 150 yards away. It was a smart move at the time. But then, and it was you know probably a smart move for the intervening two years, then this week, Tuesday, it's announced Uber is buying Drizzly for $1.1 billion. Walk me through your emotions. So I, I wake up at 4 a.m. to one of my friends who texts me, what do you think about this deal? To which I instantly Googled the Lakers at first, because this was like before it really became public. It was like, what do you think? It was deal? I instantly Googled the Lakers. I was like, I don't understand. Like, there's no deal that happened. And then I got like 40 more texts, like from a bunch of different people. And then I see it. And because like I heard some rumblings, but this not like this. Can I swear? Mm-hmm. Yeah, fuck, fuck was fuck. It's fuck. The, it was fuck. And then it was holy fuck. And then it was oh that's really cool. And then it was fuck again. Like because it was like look, once again, I benefited from this. It was very cool. But like you cannot help but think about like oh my god. But that, so the first, my first thought was the money. But then I think as I, as it went on, it's like, you can't help but be like, oh my God, like that company that like, I started with, like basically started with like two kids. We're, we're all idiots, idiot, literal idiots. Like on my couch is sold to Uber for a, like a billion dollars. A 1.1, which is like the point one is a hundred million, which any of us would have killed. The point one is what any of us would have murdered, murdered anyone to sell for in 2014, we like, would have done anything to sell for 100 million. And that was just the point one. Like, it's just, I don't know. It was, it's hard to, I still really have it. It hasn't really set in. It kind of doesn't make sense. It's such a, it's <laughs> such a fascinating mental thing, right? Because it's a, an amount of money that 99.99% of people in the world would be like, cool, I will give up my future earnings for the next five years to get this check right now. This is amazing. But at the same time, like you said, you can't help doing the math and saying, had I not sold a share, maybe I could have retired. It's, and it's even worse when you're like Jewish. I'm sitting there just being like, oh my God, like they would, they're going to convert this into stock. Like if I held this for a year, like I wouldn't even be, I'd be only taxed like like 15%. And then I'm sitting there thinking also, this is the perfect transaction. I really like Uber stock anyways. I think that's going to go up, but (laughs) I don't want to pretend. Look, when it's that much I think it's it's a, a little hard because at the end of the day, people will talk to you and they'll say, opportunities like this come and go. And you know me, I'm a, you, you and I always have the best conversations because you are the most positive person in the world and I am the most <laughs> negative person in the world. The reality is, look, there are certain things where it's like, I'll get them next time. And there are certain things where it's like, oh, I should have turned left, <laughs> you know? And but what was I going to do? I, I if I had predicted a global pandemic and a president of the United States who would have fanned the flames of a global pandemic, continuing it for an extended period of time, I probably could have made many good investments that would have paid off in similar 
ways. You just, you can't see these things coming. And I think so a couple of days into this, I'm just, I'm kind of happy for the journey as corny as that sounds. It was, I mean, just what a wild, wild. I mean, I, I, the best way to explain this is for anyone that has ever had five or six years of something on your resume that every time you spoke to anyone, they kind of had heard of, but you had to explain it to them. And all of a sudden now it's acquired by Uber for a billion dollars years into that journey. I don't really know how to explain it. It's just, it's just weird. Yeah. It's something that you weird. had to explain all of a sudden this thing that people are knocking down your door to ask you about and your friends are finally inviting you on their podcasts and, and everybody wants to talk about Drizzly being acquired by Uber. I'll take you out of the torture chair for a second. Why did Uber acquire Drizzly for one point? One and that one is important. It's a hundred million dollars. Why did Uber acquire Drizzly for one point one billion dollars? Yeah, I mean, so alcohol econ. In, in I think in a world where everything is overvalued right now, you can make an argument in the technology quote unquote sector. Alcohol e-commerce has trailed the industry for years and years and years. And there's a multitude of reasons for that, right? Like if you think of like D to C wine, for example, ninety nine percent of the wine in the United States is for is sold for a price range between three and $15, right? Like, am I going to go to a winery or something and buy and pay them $15.99 to ship me a case of wine I could go down that I don't even care about that I could go down the street and buy for 12 bucks and not pay shipping. So I get why it's why it's lagged. I think Drizzly got around a lot of that by reducing a lot of the added fee. But at the end of the day, alcohol is such a commodity product that, you know, consumer behavior was just still so heavily aimed at, I'm going to go to the supermarket and I'm going to purchase this while I'm doing something else. You know, even our best, best, best case was generally getting, you know, a chunk of someone's alcohol purchases, not a bulk. That's changed, right? If three, if about 3% of the e-commerce industry was alcohol before the pandemic, and let's say, and this is a ballpark number, I don't know the exact number, but let's say it's about 10 or 11% now, even if that spills back down to like seven or 8%, that's a, a, a leap forward that would have taken years, like years. And then if you think about other things, right? Like, okay, Uber probably has 12 to 13X the users of us, right? Like, I mean, so very easily, like straight, straightforward, their ability to actually grow it, grow it there. But I think importantly, laws around the globe for this are a little bit more lax depending on where you are. And for a company like Drizzly, the thought of going in and trying to take market share from super established players in London or Paris, I mean, how? How do you, how do you do, we're not, uh, no one has, no one knows us. We might as well be a $0 startup there. Whereas Uber can roll in and just do it. Now, is Drizzly set up there? No, but I think Uber will learn a lot from Drizzly because as someone who's been in this industry, either in it or adjacent from it for a very long time, there's such a general lack of technology experience in the alcohol industry. You could go to some of the biggest companies, biggest supermarket chains in the world and sit across the table from their heads of e-commerce and they're they're pretty they're getting better with their grocery but they don't know 
anything about alcohol. They really don't. I don't say that in a bad way. It's like, why would they? Why would it? Name me any anyone listening to this podcast who I imagine is a, is attached to tech in some way. Have any of you ever thought about going into the alcohol industry for a large supermarket chain? <laughs> no. So it's not a surprise. And so it's a it's a growing market. I don't, it's not, it's going to be a bumpy road just like we had, but as much as I can't believe I'm saying this, it's a billion dollar acquisition of Drizzly that I actually think has a chance to turn many multiples above that, which is ridiculous. And hearing you say it, <laughs> no, I kind of agree, right? Because like, listening to your journey, I think one of the tough parts and one of the things that probably makes it valuable and answers the question of like, why wouldn't Uber just go do this themselves is it's really hard, even at this point with Uber's reputation to picture them going into a small town in North Carolina or going into Raleigh and sitting at the state capitol and talking to the ABC there. It's hard to imagine Uber sitting across the table from them one at a time negotiating deals with, with the different state regulators and all of that, whereas they can just buy Drizzly all of that's there, plug it into their existing distribution. That helps along with the pandemic solve this challenge that you had where people just didn't think about buying alcohol online. If all of a sudden that's in your Uber Eats and you can just hit click and the delivery guy's going to stop on the way from McDonald's and pick up a bottle of wine, seems like it makes a ton of sense actually. Yeah. I mean, I think Uber here is if you ignore share price in the short term and things like that, really, they're, they're playing a long game and alcohol the e-commerce aspect of alcohol is still in its very much infancy. I mean, there are many directions that I'm sure they're probably not even thinking about taking this. That, like if I were there, I would like, I mean, I, we get too alcohol specific on this podcast, which would probably bore everyone, but there are so many directions that you could take this in that, you know, I, I'm just, I'm very curious to see where it goes next, but well, yeah. Congratulations on being kind of rich. Sorry that you're not richer. We have to end this with, with now that you have a little bit more spending money, what SPACs are you looking at? What are you looking at in the market? For everybody listening, Brett is my go-to guy on SPACs. He was the guy who called GameStop a week in advance. Had I listened to him, I'd be richer. Had I also then sold it at 300. So what are you looking at now? Wow. I always dreamed of having a platform to pump a stock packy, and I really appreciate you giving it to me. This is really exciting. All right. And if the regulators are listening, we're not pumping a stock, he said, to, to give my case on a company that I'm interested in. I am pumping it, guys. Come after me if you need to. No, I'm joking. Okay. This is a legitimate stock that I think is actually good. This is so stupid. All right. NXGWS, guys. Cannabis stock. Cannabis is going to have a very, very big, big year. I think it's at somewhere around mid 63. I think it's like 63 cents right, right now. It's a penny stock, trades like a normal stock. It's not volatile. This is a legitimate company, profitable. This is great. Packy, you should what, have And, and, and this is a question that I often ask you when you give me an idea, and we'll see if you have the answer this time. I'd say it's 50 50 normally. What does this company do? It's not 50 50. It's 90 10 that I don't know. And I really don't know. Okay. I don't. And that's not the point, right? The point. For anyone that's invested off of what a company does over the last year, stop. It doesn't make any sense. So what I will say is, I think if you want to have me on weekly to have the pump quarter, like questionable name, but I think we can work on it. This week, it's NXGWF. I have no analysis. Please don't ask. Actually, I'm going to do, I'll, I'll give you an easier softball question here. What's the name of the company? As you know, the name of the company is NXGWF. All right, hold on. Should I, you know what? I don't want to Google it. All right, guys. No, this no. Is so NXGWF, it's, you know, as most companies, it's a five-letter ticker, which is a good sign. Five. Um, 
it rolls off the tongue too. Like it and rolls off the tongue. Everybody just yeah. come out. I mean, it's easy. You can start a you can start a chant. Like it's easy. It rolls off the tongue. But I I think this is gonna work. I honestly, from the bottom of my heart, think it's gonna work. And Paggy, I think you should take a little bit of time to explain that it normally it normally does. It I was gonna say work. so. So this is obviously not investment advice. There have been so many times over the past year when Brett has texted me a dumb idea that ends up popping fifty to one hundred percent the next day. Past performance is not an indicator of future results. It's probably not going to happen with NXGWF, but it has happened a lot in the course of 2020 and then again in early 2021. So this was, Brett, this was a blast. I don't think there's going to be a more honest take on the internet about a billion dollar acquisition. Is there any parting word that you want to leave the audience with for right now, knowing, of course, that you're going to be back on this podcast frequently or at least any time a company that you helped found sells for a billion dollars, parting advice from Brett Beller. God, I mean, I guess I would say my advice has always been to stay skeptical of things, right? In general, like, I don't think that's the wrong thing to do, but this is proof that, I mean, if you have a good idea and you execute it really well and you don't dilute yourself into oblivion by accident or on purpose, I mean, I suppose any outcome is possible, right? And that's not something I would normally say, but you know, I guess it it turns out you either got to be really smart or really naive to pull something off. Because if you're somewhere in the middle, it, it tends it tends it tends to be tough. But I mean, this is an outcome I never saw coming. Anyone that's out there that's kind of just feels like they're in the lazy river, they're company and waiting for consumer behaviors to change. Maybe there'll be whatever version of your global pandemic is, and it will turn out well. <laughs> Brett, this was, this was as much fun as I've ever had with a microphone in front of me. Thanks for coming on the Not Boring Podcast, and you'll be back. Thanks, Have a guys. good week, everyone. NXUWF.